Uh, let us take our Bibles and turn again to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 and again uh, verses 15 and 16. Hebrews chapter 13. And uh, again we want to consider the sacrifices that please God. So verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 13. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And just thus far. Now, it's quite plain and uh, simple, I think, to notice that these two verses simply draw our attention to the kinds of sacrifices that please God. And if there's one thing that I think every Christian desires to do, it is that we would please God Himself. And it's particularly clear, I think, in this great letter, the letter to the Hebrews, that the Old Testament sacrifices, of which there were a multiplicity with all of their rules and regulations and stipulations, that with all of those Old Testament sacrifices, the writer to the Hebrews has been telling his readers that they were insufficient. That all of those sacrifices were incomplete. They were simply copies. They were shadows. They, they pointed to the reality, and the reality, of course, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. So these verses which call upon you and me to sacrifice of ourselves is in response, of course, to the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself made. Isn't that the response of joy and the response of gratitude from our hearts for what Jesus has done? And since the type and the copy uh, point to the all-sufficiency of the sacrifice or, or even of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we consider what our obligations are to one another, which these two verses lay stress upon, it is in the light or it is within the framework and the shadow of what Jesus has done and accomplished for us. My life, your life, is a response to Christ, to what God has done in Christ for us. He laid down His life for us, and so we respond in kind. And in Hebrews, this great letter, we have seen over and over again that the writer has been showing us the glorious superiority, hasn't he, of the Lord Jesus Christ, of His person, that He is a high priest, great, faithful, merciful, and that He has made sacrifice and atonement for our sins, and He intercedes for His people on behalf of His sacrifice. So therefore, Imperative that God's people respond in kind to what Jesus has done for them. Now, the one thing I think I've said a number of times that the Bible says over and over again that if you want to come to God, if you want to approach God, sacrifices are essential. No Israelite in the Old Testament dared come to God with empty hands. He had to come with an offering, whatever that offering might have been. He had to come with a sacrifice. So we recognize this uh, foundational principle that in drawing near to God, in approaching God, sacrifice is at the heart of that approach. And so too, we discover here that in response to what Christ has done for us, we are called upon to make sacrifices, to sacrifice of praise, and then to sacrifice 
that which we have, and so on, as we see in verse 15 and 16. And so we do not dare disdain or show disdain for God by coming to Him with empty hands, nothing in our hearts to bring to God. One thing I know I think about worship is that it requires time, and it requires sacrifice, and it requires preparation. It doesn't just happen. We ought to prepare ourselves for the Lord's Day, every Lord's Day, to engage with God's people, and especially to engage with God, to yield ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit, who is among us and in us, that we might draw near to God, that we might come near to God as God's people. And because we belong, especially as this epistle reminds us, to the new covenant, the covenant relationship that God has made between Himself and ourselves because of Christ and His work. So, since we belong to that new covenant, the writer to the epistle to the Hebrews uh, tells us about how you can please God, how I can please God, the kind of sacrifices that please God. The implication or what is implied in that is simply that there might be something you bring that does not please God. And with those sacrifices, God would not be pleased. Cain tried it and failed. Nadab and Abihu tried it and failed. You cannot come except in the prescribed way. And here, certainly, this is Holy Scripture. And verse 15 and 16 tell us how we ought to come and with what sacrifices we come. So sacrifices that please God must therefore, of course, by necessity, be sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Now let me remind you, because we have already considered verse 15, uh, where this writer has been urging these Hebrew Christians, as he comes to the end of this great epistle, to continually praise God. To continually offer up to God, he says, the fruit of our lips. Whether that is by confession, because it is to acknowledge His name, as verse 15 says, or with thankfulness in our hearts, with gratitude in our hearts, with, with praise on our lips like we have sung tonight, all of those ideas are in verse 15. That we should come and with our lips we should be producing a confession of God. So when we sing our hymns, it should be good theology, right? Because we want to say or we want to sing the right things about God. We don't want to sing anything that is detrimental to God. We want to, we want to acknowledge by our lips, by our praise, our sacrifice of praise, that which confesses God, praises God, acknowledges His name. And thus our sacrifice from our lips is praise and is thanksgiving that comes from our heart that loves God and wants to say thank you to God. In fact, every worship service affords you and I as a corporate body of God's people just the opportunity to praise Him and to thank Him. But so too does your closet where you meet with God privately, your own life. You have the opportunity there to praise Him and to thank Him with grateful hearts. And verse 15, I think, and verse 16 are simply a response, as I've said already, to what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for all of His people. This is our response from our hearts. Notice where does this response take place? In the context, it's outside the gate, outside the city walls, outside the camp, outside Jerusalem at the cross. That's where it takes place as we respond. And how do we respond? Let us go to Him, the writer tells us in verse 14 and so on. Let us go and identify with 
our Lord Jesus Christ. And we identify with Christ, he tells us in verse 13, by bearing His reproach. And because we have a new home and a new city that is eternal. We're going somewhere. In fact, we are going to a place, as I think I might have said something about it this morning, where there is praise that takes place. Where there is thanksgiving that just abounds to the glory of God. And what a better way to prepare ourselves than to start now in this life for the life that is to come in the presence of God. So verse 15 urges this sacrifice of praise, which is a response of thankfulness from our hearts and coming out of our lips. But now here, notice in verse 16, he, he calls upon us to sacrifice ourselves and what we have, our possessions. There is the teaching of Scripture that we lay down our lives for the brothers, right? This is what the writer to the Hebrews is thinking of. I think this is clear in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, you find the, the disciples and the apostles and the early church gathering everything together and sharing it among themselves. Just so that they could have one common life. And we all recognize, I think, when you talk about a common life, that there are negatives and there are positives to such an idea. And many people have tried that in communes and all of these kinds of things, to have one common life. And generally what results in those kinds of things is cult-like behavior and danger and so on. But not so the early church. Because the early church uh, was filled with the Spirit the resurrection of Jesus had taken place. The Holy Spirit had come in great power. And they were a joyful people who gathered together and wanted to help one another and share their lives. It was the natural outworking of what Jesus had done for them. And that should be the response of every Christian. We should respond in a similar way. The sacrifice of ourselves and the sacrifice of what we have. So verse 15 is a sacrifice of lips. Let us offer a sacrifice of praise. What is that? The fruit of our lips. Verse 15, a sacrifice of lips. But verse 16, a sacrifice of life. All that I have to do good and so on. So we notice in verse 16 that we have two actions that are urged upon us. And I want you to notice with me that the one is stated from a negative perspective and the other is stated from a positive perspective. So verse Verse uh, 15 and 16, well, verse 16, do not neglect to do good, that's the negative, and to share what you have, that's the positive. And notice that the writer calls both of these for with such sacrifices, such sacrifices, what sacrifices? The do not neglect to do good, that's a sacrifice, and to share what you have, that's a sacrifice. And the word that he uses there for such sacrifices is the plural for sacrifices. So we're talking about a twofold demonstration or a two, a two kinds of sacrifices here. And he states one, as I've said, from the negative way of saying it and the other directly positive to us. So verse 15 urges you and I to have a heart of praise, of thankfulness to God. But verse 16 urges us to be of help to others, of help to others. And I think that we can be of help to others if we have the right heart. So verse 16 builds itself upon verse 15. And they are connected together. Certainly the phrase in verse 16, such sacrifices, I think, must include also the sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice of our lips in verse 15. 
Now, you know, a life of praise of God or praise to God is of absolutely no value. No value whatsoever unless it demonstrates itself. It's easy to sing hymns of praise. It's easy to say thanks or say I am grateful. But the real test of sacrifices is what am I prepared to do or what am I doing to demonstrate my gratitude and my thankfulness to God. I mean, anybody can open their mouths and anybody can say a few words, but there are very few that can open their lives and give their lives for the life of others, share what they have. So outward, outward participation by your lips, by your mouth, outward participation is no substitute for the participation of sharing with your life or sharing your life with others. Do you remember how the Old Testament prophet Micah of Moresheth put it to Israel and Judah in Micah chapter 6? Will the Lord be pleased, he asked, with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Shall I do those things? No, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does God require of you but to do justice? Notice, to do justice, not talk about justice. A lot of talk about justice today. But to do justice and to love kindness. What is kindness? Simply the demonstration of that which is good on behalf of someone else. And to walk humbly with our God or your God. So that our walk with God is linked to our demonstration that we belong to God, which expresses itself by the fruit of our lips. But if there is no action, if there is no demonstration, then of what value is the fruit of your lips in praising God? In fact, verse 15 and verse 16 here could be said to be the fulfilling, surely, of the two great commandments, right? I mean, if you look at verse 15 where he urges us to praise God. Surely that is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love Him, to tell Him. But in verse 16, to do good and to share what you have, surely that is to love your neighbor and to share what you have. So therefore, it becomes imperative, I think, that we understand these verses not just as separate verses, but that they belong together, so, and simply because we do not separate the two commandments. To love God is to love your neighbor. To love your neighbor is to love God. So to praise God truly manifests itself in a demonstration of doing good and sharing what you have. And doing good and sharing what you have is because you are praising and thankful to God. And so we bind them together. They are, they are connected together, and we don't separate then. Uh, the two commandments, we don't separate then these, verse 15 and 16. They belong together. They're like inseparable companions. Cannot have the one without the other. The praising of God in verse 15 is thankfulness, isn't it? I mean, what are you praising God for? You're thanking Him. And in thanksgiving, that's going to result from a heart of thankfulness and gratitude to God for what you have received from God to then respond toward others in doing and sharing and giving in helping others in their Christian life or even others who are not even Christians. 
Now that means if you become slack in the one, you very possibly will be slack in the other. It's possible. Of course you can praise and praise and praise and everybody might think you're wonderful and do nothing on the other hand. Or you might be doing an abundance of things and never praising God. Those things are all possible. We recognize that. The point is let us not be slack in either. But let us do both. Let us aim for verse 15 and aim for verse 16. Now I want to ask the question, because it's good to ask Scripture questions uh, when it gives us these statements. Why does the writer state the first part of verse 16 from the negative sense? Do not neglect to do good. Why doesn't he just say do good? Why does he put it that way? Do not neglect to do good. The Greek text is very interesting because it puts it this way. It says, but to do good and to share, do not neglect. And there you can see that the Greek text combines both the actions of verse 16 under the phrase, do not neglect. So, with doing good and sharing, do not neglect. But why does he say it like that? Why does he say it like that? This neglect which seems to cover the doing good and the sharing of others. Well, I think we have to remind ourselves of, of some things that we find in this epistle that the writer to the Hebrews has been urging upon these Hebrews in very strong language, in very spiritual language. For instance, he tells them back in chapter 2, and I think I'd like to show you this if you turn back to Hebrews chapter 2, he tells them to not neglect their salvation. Same word. So if you look at verse 3, of Hebrews chapter 2. He says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we escape? Well, they won't escape if they neglect their salvation, right? That's the obvious intent. I mean, their souls would be in jeopardy, he's saying, if they neglect their salvation. But just how would they show that they were neglecting their salvation? How do you neglect your salvation? Well, if you look at verse 1, chapter 2, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You want to know how you neglect your salvation? You drift away from the message that you have heard. And it has been my experience, and I know it's been your experience, that there have been many who have professed to believe and faith and then have over time slowly drifted away. And that word, to drift away, is the idea of a slow moving away from a fixed position. I mean, what better place to be fixed upon your life, your soul, than the Word of God? That's where my mooring is. It's like the boat that is pulled up to the pier and the rope is thrown over the post and there it is made fast. Why? So that the boat doesn't drift away slowly. If that rope were to loosen itself from its mooring, the boat would eventually drift away. That's the idea. Do not drift away. Do not drift away from what you have heard, he says. Because if you do drift away and you start to drift away, find yourself drifting away, beware because you might find yourself neglecting your salvation. Isn't this one of the ways we remind ourselves, by the way, of our salvation every day when we read our Bibles? 
Because how can you read God's word and not be reminded of what God has done for you? doesn't matter where you read. You know that what you're reading is the word of God. You know that God is speaking through his word to you. And so we must not drift away from the message the writer to the Hebrews says that we have heard. Must pay much closer attention. Notice he says, pay much closer attention, not just pay attention, but pay more attention, deeper attention to the word of God, to the message that we have received and that we have believed. And this reminds us then that having heard and responded to the gospel in the first place is not enough. It is not enough in the first place to have done that. Let there be a continuation. Let there be a growing in faith and maturity to demonstrate that I have salvation and that I'm not neglecting it and I'm not drifting away from the Word. So the great, the great cure for protecting my salvation, if I can put it like that, because I know it's God who protects our salvation, but is to ensure that I don't drift away from what I confess and what I profess and what I say I believe. In other words, the writer, with his great theme in the back of his mind of perseverance, right, he is saying to the, to the Hebrew Christians in this first warning passage in Hebrews chapter 2, out of the six warning passages that we have, he is saying that you must give diligence and careful perseverance in not neglecting your salvation or by paying closer attention to the word that you have believed. So, to neglect something is to stop doing it, is to forget about it, is to fail to engage with what you previously were doing. You will notice in chapter 13, in verse 2, same word, he says, do not neglect to show hospitality. Same idea, right? And notice that neglect in verse 2 of chapter 13, when he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for some have entertained angels unawares, that neglect there is connected to a very concrete, definite, real action. What is the real action? Showing hospitality to strangers. He says, don't neglect to do that. Don't stop doing that. Don't fail to do that, he says. And here, in verse 16, he says, do not neglect to do good. So doing good or to do good, a translation would be to be helpful, to be kind, to do good, to show good. In fact, the Latin word is beneficence. With the English word, we get the Latin beneficence, which is simply kindness. Do not neglect to show kindness. And showing of kindness is really a way of doing that which is good. So the emphasis in verse 16, when we read it here, is not on the doing good part, but on the neglecting part. It's not on the doing the good, but it's on the neglecting of it. And it's easy to neglect something, you know. By laziness, by sloth, which is even further on from lazy, right? Or by having no concern or no care for something. Or by failing to pay attention or give attention to something. When he says do not neglect, that's what he means. He means stop giving in to perhaps laziness or slothfulness that leads you away from what you should be thinking about doing. 
So the writer is thinking more of the neglecting part of the phrase than he is of the doing of the phrase, the good part. He expects us to do good. He expects Christians to be this different kind of person from the world, to do good. But he says it this way, don't be negligent. He says, don't be backward. In other words, do it, is what he says. William Gouge, who was, who's written a very neglected commentary, two-volume commentary on the epistle to the Hebrews, uh, which are largely sermons compiled together that he, that he preached over many, many years uh, in the late 1500s to the early 1600s. William Gouge says that many seem forward in offering a sacrifice of praise to God, but are very backward in offering the sacrifice of charity to men. It's easy to praise God. It's very difficult or different to do good to others. It's easy to offer the fruit of lips, verse 15, than it is to do, verse 16. That's why he says, do not neglect. That's why he stresses it. So the Apostle Paul, thinking of the similar thing, says to the Galatians in chapter 6, verse 9, he says, do not, Let us not grow weary in well-doing or doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And in the same chapter, verse 10, he goes on, he says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Everyone, the world, and especially the church, believers in the Lord Jesus. What is it about this doing good? It pleases God. It pleases God, so not neglecting to do it is pleasing to God. So notice that it's my attitude, my approach to doing good that counts. Don't neglect it. Don't be negligent in doing it. Don't put it off. Don't delay. Don't you have many experiences like that where you, where you remind yourself, I've, I should have said something, or I should have done something, or I felt like the Holy Spirit was leading me, but I didn't do what I did. And then there's regret on our part. This is what he means. If you, if you are negligent or fractionally negligent, it causes those kinds of difficulties. Do not neglect to do good, he says. So Paul tells the Romans chapter 2, verse 7, be patient in well-doing. Think about that. Be patient in well-doing. It's for the long term. Think about it. And in the doing of it, be suffering. Be patient. 2 Thessalonians 3.13 As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Don't get tired of doing good. 1 Peter 2.15 For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You see, who can compete with an action of doing good? Who's going to moan about it? Well, somebody might open their mouths, but nobody can really say anything if you've done that which is good. 1 Peter 3.17, It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So I ask myself, well, how do I do good? Because he says, don't neglect to do good. So how do I do good? Here's the first thing. The first thing, have a ready mind. Have a mindset to do good to everyone, to the world, and especially to the household of faith. What does it mean to have a ready mind? It means to incline yourself to this 
action. It's an act of the will. It's like loving someone, right? To love that which you don't love is an act of the will, a massive act of the will to engage in love. That's the first thing. Have a ready mind. Be ready to be like this. Second, should make use of every opportunity that comes your way to exercise care, to exercise pity, to exercise compassion, to exercise help. Every occasion. In other words, be open to every occasion in life because you never know what's coming your way when you may be called upon to respond in a certain way and you failed to do it because you weren't prepared, you weren't ready. Have a ready mind and make use of every occasion that comes your way. Thirdly, let your whole life aim at doing good. So how do you do that? Well, you just make it a mindset, as, as I said, first of all. Make it an aim. Make it a determination. I think often about this Good Samaritan, right? Luke chapter 10. I mean, the Good Samaritan gives us ample evidence, doesn't he, that he was ready and that he was prepared. When you think about the Levite and the priest who crossed over on the other side and walked on by, they certainly weren't ready in their minds to confront one of their own race, a fellow Jew lying there helpless. They weren't ready to stop. They weren't ready to think about what that might mean, what sacrifice upon them, their time, their money that might mean. They weren't ready. They weren't prepared for that. That's why they crossed over as if they'd never seen him and walked on by. But not the Good Samaritan. Oh no, that man came up and the Bible says he came to where he was, the man lying there, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He had compassion. Not only that, but he went to him. And he bound up his wounds and he poured on him oil and wine. Now that tells you that he was ready to help someone. He was ready if it was a medical emergency, which it was. He had oil and wine and bandages. He was ready to do it. In fact, he had funds enough to say to the man the next day, take care of him and I will repay whatever it costs. The question by Jesus in that Luke 10 passage, right, to the man who said, well, who's my neighbor? The answer by Jesus, or the question by Jesus was now, who do you think proved, proved, notice, demonstrated that they had a neighbor? And the answer was by the man, the one who showed him mercy. Notice, the one who showed him action. The one who demonstrated by his action that he was the neighbor. Who got down off his donkey and bound up his wounds, who showed him mercy. And do you know what Jesus said to that, which was the right answer? He says, you go and what? Do. Do likewise. Action. You go and do. I'm sure the priest and the Levite who made it to the temple, wherever they were going, might have said to people in their ministry, we ought to do good to people. We ought to minister to people. I mean, that's what we are. We are God's people. Surely we should always be demonstrating that. Yet they were the very ones, those holy men, set apart to worship God who walked by on the other side. So we must always be prepared, right, to avail ourselves of every opportunity which comes our way every day that presents itself to do good. John Owen says that this should be the design of your life. 
the design of your life. You give yourself to this kind of life. So to show mercy, to show love, is the true sacrifice, right? To do good, then, is to act for the good and the advancing of others. Their benefit, their help, their uh, profit. And this leads quite naturally, I think, do not neglect to do good to that second part of verse 16. And to share what you have. Now, you know, that's an interesting phrase because just one word in the Greek text is the very common word koinonia, which is the word for fellowship. The word for partaking, the word for participation, the word for contribution, the word for communion. So the context implies the making available of what I have, what I possess to others. That's what he means. A material sharing. Remember, this is a sacrifice. And a sacrifice always costs you something. If it doesn't cost you anything, it's no sacrifice. All sacrifices involve price and involve a cost. So to do good and to share what you have, the writer says, is going to be a cost to yourself. It's going to cost you something. It might even be viewed by you as a loss to yourself. You might come out on the wrong side, losing, but not to God. God is well pleased with our losses like that. Now, you know, the Hebrews have experienced this kind of life living together themselves. I mean, if you go back to chapter 10, go back to chapter 10. Look at verse 34, chapter 10. Uh, in verse 34 of chapter 10, he says, You had compassion on those who were in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Well, sometimes I just haven't got my mind around that. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Because you knew you had a better possession and an everlasting one or an abiding one. So they knew loss, didn't they? I mean, they knew what it was to have their properties taken from them, the plundering of their properties. They knew loss. Yet we find that the writer says of them that they had compassion on those who were in prison. In fact, he says in verse 32, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, when you had believed, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So when you look at that, you see that they themselves suffered loss, and yet at the same time they engaged in helping others. It's a remarkable testimony of the Hebrews. That here on the one hand they can lose everything, and on the other hand be prepared to, to identify with those in prison, to have compassion on them, to treat, visit them, and so on and so forth. Yes, to do good, brothers and sisters, and to share what you have is a cost. It is a cost to ourselves. It is a loss to ourselves. And so, Jesus tells the rich young ruler, doesn't he, in Luke chapter 18, this man who has everything, one thing you lack. You've, you've got your theology right. You say you love God. Now show it. 
Show that God is good and show that you love God. One thing you lack, see, sell all that you have and give to the poor. What an action. Notice, not sell some of your profits because I know you need to live. Sell everything and give everything to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. That is self-sacrifice, isn't it? Fullest self-sacrifice. To leave nothing for yourself. And we would say, well, you can't do that. Got to have something to feed my family. Got to have something to, to live on. Jesus says, if you love your family more than you love me, you are not worthy of me. What are you prepared to do? What are you prepared to sacrifice for Jesus? So we discover that the gospel actually lays demands upon us. That since Christ did everything for us in laying down His life, so too we must lay down our lives for one another, which may mean the loss of everything to us. Paul tells Timothy, as he writes to them about all those people who are rich in this present age, he says that they are to do good. That's what he says to the rich, because they are able to, he says. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share their lives, and to share what they have. You remember how he urges the thief in the epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 4 and verse 28, let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him work, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. What a, what a way of thinking for a thief, right? I used to steal for myself. Now I'm to work for others so that what I have I can share with anyone who has in need. That's the power of the gospel. That's what it does to our lives. It transforms us. Paul tells the Romans in chapter 12, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Do not neglect Chapter 13, verse 2 of Hebrews, to show hospitality to strangers. You see, it is these sacrifices of ourselves and sacrifices of what we possess that prove that the sacrifice of praise is really genuine. That's the real test, the real proof. So doing good and sharing what you have is a spiritual activity, a spiritual endeavor. It's a spiritual exercise. So much so that the Lord Jesus said that we should love our enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, Jesus says, and you will be sons of the Most High. Why? Because He, God, is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil, meaning myself and you. He's kind to you, therefore you be kind to others, Jesus says. Paul says, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to anyone and everyone. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 15. That's just simply the fulfilling, by the way, of Psalm 34, which is an excellent psalm to read. Turn away from evil and do good. And do good. The implication of that, by the way, is that if you do not do good, you do evil. We don't think like that. So these two things then, to do good, verse 16, and to share what you have, the writer says these are the sacrifices that please God. Please God. 
Sacrifices, why sacrifices? Because they are a detriment to ourselves. They bring loss to us, but they always bring benefit to others. Listen, you can only sacrifice what you have. You can only sacrifice what is yours. I can't sacrifice what is yours. You possess it. And same with me. In fact, you have a right to what you have to retain it. Because it is yours, given to you by God. You have that right, but you have a greater right and a greater responsibility to give what you have to others. We can have closed hands. And closed hands are because we have closed hearts. We shouldn't be like that. My duty then, your duty then, is to sacrifice. What's my motive? God is pleased. You want to please God? Then He calls upon us to make sacrifice of ourselves. So notice verse 16, For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That word pleasing, by the way, has two senses. It has an active sense and it has a passive sense. And the active sense means to please, to cause to be pleased. The passive sense means to take pleasure in or delight in or to be pleased with something. So from my perspective, from your perspective, let us please God with our sacrifices. That's the active sense. But from God's sense, He is pleased when we make those sacrifices from the passive sense. The church to, at Philippi, the Philippians, was a remarkable church. They gave great gifts to the Apostle Paul in his imprisonment. They sent Epaphroditus, one of their own men, to bring the gift to Paul. And this is what Paul said. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts, plural, that you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul's saying the same thing, right? Their gifts to him were a sacrifice made to God, that God says, I'm, I accept it and it's well-pleasing to me. It's like, it's like the Old Testament sacrifices and the smoke ascends and it pleases God because He smells the aroma. He's pleased. The Lord Jesus said of His relationship to His Father, I always do the things which are pleasing to Him. Always. John chapter 8, verse 29. So... You and I, we must always try and discern what the will of God is for us, right? Ephesians 5.10. Well, I can tell you from this passage and these two verses, here is God's will because these are sacrifices that please God. You want to please God? Do what God says, right? Offer a sacrifice of praise. Prove it that it's real and genuine from a transformed heart by showing that you care and concern, have concern for others. That's what Paul told the Colossians, right? Chapter 1 verse 10, So that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So, I close with these things. We learn from this. Number one, how important it is to actually praise God. How important it is to worship God. How important it is to thank God. How important it is to acknowledge God in your life and everything that you have. In fact, he says, doesn't he, in verse 15, that it is so important, let it be continual. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise.
to God. How important that is. Second, how important it is to be of service to one another. Verse 16, how am I to be of service, to do good, not neglect it, and secondly, to share what I have. So that by my lips and by my life, God calls me to demonstrate that I respond to the sacrifice that Christ made for me by sacrificing myself, my life. It's that which pleases God. With such sacrifices, God's pleased. And God gets the glory. So my motivation, your motivation, is because God is pleased with such things. Do we not want to please God? Surely we do, right? We are to be motivated then by these things. Let us bring our sacrifices to God. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, how grateful and thankful we are for everything that you have done for us in our Christian experience in life. How grateful we are that you have, from that very first moment when you opened our eyes to see the gospel and to believe the gospel, that from then on we owe indeed everything that we have and everything that we are to you. Now you call upon us to praise you and to thank you, to be a thankful people, to be a praising people, but also to be a sharing people, a giving people, a people who love and a people who serve. So let the fruit of our lips manifest itself by the fruit of our lives, by doing good and sharing what we have. How we thank you for these things in your word which are so good, so pure, so true, so holy. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for what we've learned this day. Thank you for your word. Now may the Holy Spirit help us to understand these things. We commit ourselves to you, Lord. Go before us in this new week which lies in front of us and help us uh, in our daily work, Monday through Friday. Help us to labor and work and to work for your glory and in the doing of it to share what we have and to do good and to please you. So thank you for these things. Thank you for one another. Thank you for this day, the Lord's day, the sweetness of it. Take us now to home in safety, we pray. Watch over us. We commend ourselves to you. Direct us. Go before us. We ask it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.